So, here we are, <laughs> coming to the end of a longish period of sometimes mostly silent intensive practice here. Soon to be uh, taking yourselves, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for each of you. Which for most of you actually will entail a much longer period of intensive practice. (laughs) With the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, there's your practice. I think actually that many of us come to the end of a retreat with some of the same thoughts and feelings that aren't really so dissimilar from what we came into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. And sometimes just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling of, well, I'm not quite finished out here. I just need a few more days, maybe I need another week so I can do all the things that need to be done, and then I'll be ready to go in. And it seems that some of us um, have similar thoughts when it's time to come out. An excitement and a readiness maybe to go into the larger world. Or maybe there are thoughts of, well, just a little more time. Maybe a few more days. Maybe a couple of weeks. Oh my, maybe even a month. (laughs) to do what needs to be done. And then I'll be finished. And then I'll be ready to come out. And then I'll be ready to go back out there. And sometimes on either end, the going into retreat and coming out of retreat, there may be some degree of resistance, some degree of reluctance, some maybe some fear of the unknown, fear of the seeming known, maybe essentially just fear of change, fear of ending one way and entering into another way. For some, there may have been a kind of urgency before coming into retreat. You just can't wait, so ready, so ready to go into retreat. And then at the other end, one can hardly wait, hardly wait to get out of here. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe an urgency uh, to get back to one's regular life. So you might check in with yourselves and uh, see... uh, if there might be some of these kinds of thoughts and feelings, similar conditioned patterns within your own mind and heart coming up now at the end of this retreat that you might have experienced as you were preparing to come here or maybe that you felt at the onset of the retreat or during the retreat, for instance, as we moved in and out of the various uh, practice modalities offered in this particular retreat. And of course, we might not feel <clears throat> any anxiety in either direction, entering into or coming out of retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat that I taught a number of years ago now, one person described uh, coming out of retreat as feeling like she was descending, like in a plane, descending, landing, 
feeling the force of gravity, as she said it, coming back to earth. There's a a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swicart regarding his experience um, in outer space, and I'd like to share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there's no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum, and there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this, this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God? To have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time and you know all those people down there and they are like you, they are you and somehow you represent them. You're up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end and that's a humbling feeling. It's a feeling that you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The mind, the heart that doesn't see doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, it is a change. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as you <clears throat> make your way out into out-of-retreat life, into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life. At least outwardly, life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into the larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us even in the slow pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom, is really a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with the larger world in its day-to-dayness or moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily lives. And we've had some taste of the impersonality of change. We've tasted that we can't stop change. And that even if we try, we can't hold on to anything. 
And maybe we've tasted how painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness developed over these two weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body or the mind, the heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, really an unfathomable amount of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it, or whatever it is, changes quite quickly or just simply disappears. These tastes, this understanding, has a very deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things and how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices that we make. More connection and clarity in relationship to others. More clarity in what's important and appropriate and what's wholesome and really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is really a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down, a life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside of retreat. So this is another change from here to there. Life in retreat offers very little distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, we do our yogi job, we sleep. You've practiced moving your body in authentic and maybe some unique ways. And you've learned to see, not just look, through the eye door which opened up the door to drawing. You've written words from a growing place of trust and spontaneity and selflessness. And you've spoken just a little every few days. And within this container of simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body the mind and the heart, and been been invited to sense, to see, to know. Is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting, and receiving what is? Or is it disconnected, separated? With all of this practice and learning, bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind, our body, and our heart. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. All of us, we're all so similar, no matter who we are, no matter where we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color, Really, we're just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, or virtue, living ethically, living respectfully, 
living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions. It also affects our thoughts. Seeing into our mind, our heart, affects and informs the motivation behind the words, the actions, and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit, and habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care, and let it spring from love, born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of engaging in the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice, maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts, our words, and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts uh, that I offered the very first evening of this retreat that was written by Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch Farm. And I'd like to share it with you again because it's particularly relevant to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how, deep, how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures, the three treasures being the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha. For me, um, as I'm sure for many of you as well, Over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in a way that serves, that supports the process of purification of the heart, which is intimately related to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through the conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. 
And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions in our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to, to whatever degree. And it's very often around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. So a personal example. There was a time when um, I would get into my car and automatically turn the radio on. And at some point I began to um, notice this as a distraction. So I decided not to turn it on all the time. And I'd begin driving somewhere and my hand would kind of automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. As we know, the force of habit is really very strong. So mindfully I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available, to or not to. And looking at another change, in this simple and quiet space of retreat, there may have been some big days, some big events for you. An especially big day or big event for you in this retreat might have been something as completely mundane as laundry day. For me, there were times um, in earlier years of long intensive uh, retreat practice when laundry day was such a such a a huge addition to my day at times that I would find myself planning for it or thinking about it before I went to sleep the night before laundry day. And then sometimes it would be one of the very first things that would come into my mind when I woke up that morning. So maybe maybe you know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And how about the big event of the midday meal? What will we have for lunch today? Or as you're eating today's lunch, what will we have for lunch tomorrow? (laughs) Or maybe the event of having a one-on-one practice meeting. And in this retreat, maybe the big, big day of the first day of movement practice. Or the first day of the seeing drawing practice or the first day of writing practice. A poem by wandering Japanese Buddhist poet Nanao Sakaki, who died uh, six years ago, he called this poem A Big Day. Getting water at the spring carrying firewood, chattering with a neighbor. The sun goes down. A big day. (laughs) Many years ago, Nanao used to spend time at the Lama Foundation, which is about 30 minutes from here. And he'd show up at Lama with his small a knapsack and a sleeping bag and he'd stay there for a few days and they were always very happy to put him up and then he'd head up out into the mountains with just this nothing more than what he'd arrived with and he'd often be gone for a few weeks and then back at the Lama Foundation again uh, a dear friend of mine who was the uh, coordinator at Lama during those years told me a story 
uh, of one of these times when Nanao had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he'd asked her and another friend uh, if they'd like to come out to his camp for dinner in a few days. Well, my friend said that this was really something very special, something that, in fact, had never been offered before. So on the appointed day and time, my friend and the other invitee found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his very careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there was no food ready or uh, in view for dinner. And he told them not to bring anything, not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friend said that they thought, well, maybe they'd made a mistake, that this was the wrong day. But Nanao was really delighted to see them, and he welcomed them quite heartily and said, well, now let's go out and find dinner. (laughs) And my friend friend said that they walked and picked and dug various wild foods. And then they came back and they built a fire and they cooked what needed cooking and had an incredibly delicious dinner. She said that they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or weeks at a time with almost nothing and come back strong, healthy, and very happy. Once someone in a practice interview spoke about the simplicity of retreat life as having a good taste. We taste it, this good taste. And we take it with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and sometimes big ways. Life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times our home and family life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of this complexity. And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do. We make choices in the ways that we spend our time with a partner, family, and friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We really, truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We have the possibility of expanding and deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we must continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another really beneficial effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and it inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity, various relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat life, we learn and we see We come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated unskillful ways of being and doing. We find ourselves connecting with 
more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. We find, in fact, that we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So, simplicity inwardly and outwardly. In times of retreat, and as we connect to a larger world. Simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. Considering our whole life as our practice, How can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all the dimensions of our being. Making our body our speech, our actions, our thoughts, our feelings, our relationships, our work, our play and our creative endeavors, all part of our practice. And we can find many moments throughout our day when we can simply bring our attention, for instance, to the sensations of the breath in almost any circumstance or activity. From this perspective, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really, all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes, all that we experience in life in retreat and in life outside of retreat. Because you've all experienced all of this during these last two weeks. Really, all of it, the mirrors for practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel quite a number of years ago and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff told me a story that's really a a wonderful mirror of a particular and difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France there was an old man who was very difficult. He was a very difficult, irascible fellow. And she said he was quite messy and argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate, he wouldn't help with things, and basically didn't get along with others in the community. And she said that no one really liked him very much, and he himself didn't seem to like very many of the people in the community either. And he tried to stay there for a long time, but it was very difficult for him as well as for other people. So difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris. He couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris and he tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said no, he couldn't do it. It was just too hard to be there. So, Gurdjieff finally offered him a monthly stipend to come back which the man actually couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he did return. And when he arrived, the woman said everyone in the community was really aghast. 
And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. (laughs) Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So Gurdjieff called a meeting of everyone. And he listened to all of the complaints. And then he laughed. And he said, This man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. (laughs) (laughs) The conditions of our life, the people in our lives, are really all part of our practice. They're yeast for our bread, yeast for the purification of our heart and mind, yeast for our awakening, yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching uh, among the 84,000 that the Buddha offered, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings. The four divine abidings being metta, unconditional loving kindness, karuna, compassion, mudita, appreciative or empathetic joy, and upaka, equanimity. Each of the sons, because of his particular age and personality and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of the divine abidings. Well, I have only three sons, but they've managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can be some of our best teachers, just simply through them being who they are, what they need from us, and what they give to us, what they show us. So an example, my two oldest sons, who are 50 now, 50 years old, they're identical twins. And they continue to show me, to teach me a relationship that's really quite rare. They're each other's best friends. And although when they were little guys, um, they would fight with each other, as children do, over these years, all these years, they've never talked about each other or to each other in negative or judgmental ways. They never, really never, put each other down. No matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, and no matter how the other's life is going. And they're not each other's keeper. They've never been disrespectful or codependent with each other. This is really quite a rare friendship, and sometimes I'm in awe of it, and I learn from it again and again. Every aspect of life is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. And some words from the Buddha again. As a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem, this is from the Turkish of Edib Kansavar, I'm not sure I'm pronouncing the name right, and translated by Richard Tillinghast. And it's called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table, put flowers in a copper bowl there, 
He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window. Sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel. The softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that had happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life. He put there those he loved, those he didn't love. The man put them on the table too. Three times three makes nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. The a key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path is first and foremost a focused, concentrated attention that's well grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And as some of you have mentioned, it's true, there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these two weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this as we connect to a larger world. And it's true that there's some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness and investigation from how it is in a retreat such as this as we reconnect with the larger world. And although this same degree and depth of concentration, mindfulness, and investigation isn't usually totally sustained outside of a retreat setting, the concentration mindfulness and investigative capacities that developed along with the multi-dimensional facets of understanding, of wisdom that have blossomed for each one of you in a retreat like this are really a great support and a great protection as we connect to a larger world. There's a change, but we don't lose it. Mindfulness, concentration, and investigation and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always available to us. Many years ago at the end of a two-month retreat with one of my Burmese teachers, Saida Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a brief conversation with one of the monks. And I asked him if there was any advice that he might give me around taking uh, practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. You need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. You need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. (coughs) That's all he said. Pretty good advice. In terms of integrating your practice of a relaxed and focused mindful attention and investigation more and more fully into your life, you might consider incorporating some of the movement practices and setting up maybe some specific time for seeing and drawing and writing into your weekly schedule. This is a poem that I found to be quite inspirational by a man named Red Hawk. 
and he calls this an inquiry into art. The idea is to catch the moment and dance, to look at the world from both sides, like the farmer in Iowa who glances up from his plow, startled, believing he has just caught a scent of the ocean. Looking up, he sees instead rain clouds and shakes his head, smiling. At his first nod, a gull bends brightly out on a band of wind, dancing in a haze of rain. He looks to heaven and his face fills with rain. His hair floats on air. His shirt billows and gasps. He rises and flies west. And there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be quite helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate concentrated mindfulness into our lives. One suggestion from a Dhamma teacher friend of mine is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two minutes to just stop be still, and simply connect with the breath at the touching point in the area of the nostrils or in the belly or in and through the whole body. So however long your waking day is, that could be 15 or 30 minutes, 15 to 30 minutes of a very directly focused mindful time with each minute having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to carry practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensations through contact. Just simply the feet on the ground, the bottom touching the chair, hands touching each other. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened each time we do this. I think the only hard thing uh, about doing these very brief meditation sessions is to remember to do them. I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or in their workplace to remind them to check in. So, for instance, a note maybe on the bathroom mirror. Breath. A little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work still breathing (laughs) or metta now there was a fellow on staff at the Insight Meditation Society who worked in the front office who had a small stand-up note on his desk that said buttocks (laughs) reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points of his bottom on the chair every now and then And the last time I was teaching at the Forest Refuge, which is the long-term practice center uh, on the Insight Meditation Society campus, and I was having a meeting with the uh, director of the Forest Refuge, and then all of a sudden there was a ding uh, bell sound, and he just stopped in the middle of, I don't know if it was in the middle of a sentence, but it was in the middle of our meeting, and just closed his eyes and sat quietly. So did I. And I asked him about it, and he said he had his computer set to ding, to ring a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes to remind him to just simply stop and check in with his breath for a few minutes and then go on with what he was doing. I thought it was a great idea. It happened a couple times during our meeting. Walking meditation can really be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect with and strengthen concentration and mindfulness. Most of us, 
We walk at least a few miles just going from place to place through a day, certainly through a week. And we can make some of this walking time a time of practice. Quite a number of years ago when I lived at the Insight Meditation Society as the resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I did many, many practice meetings with staff, and I also had a lot of other meetings, I really didn't have time during the day to do any walking meditation. So I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, it would be my walking practice. And so once I decided to do that, I did it on most days. And at one point, uh, a staff member came in for his practice interview. And he was obviously quite um, agitated. And with uh, some difficulty, he told me that he was uh, very upset because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs, I wouldn't even look at him. And he was wondering if I was angry with him. And I told him uh, that going up and down the stairs was my walking meditation time, and that I certainly hadn't abandoned him, and I wasn't angry at all with him. And that I was just practicing as uh, deeply as I could going up and down the stairs. Well, this completely changed his attitude. And he was happy for me and told me he thought it was a great idea. People may not always understand what you're up to when you integrate practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And it's really helpful to connect with others who practice. We certainly can see see and feel the benefit of this, as many of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. If you're not connected at least sometimes with a group, even just a group of two or three to sit with once in a while, check in and see if there's a sitting group in your area. And if there isn't one, start one which might mean just asking one or two other people who you know who meditate or who are interested in learning to meditate to join you once a week or every other week. The Inquiring Mind Journal, which is uh, over on the table in the dining room for you to take if you would like to, um, lists sitting groups around the country. So it's worth taking a look at if you don't know if there's a sitting group in your area. And when you sit together with others, you can read something out loud about the teachings and the practice. Maybe listen to a a Dhamma talk on a CD or online. And maybe take turns each week as to who chooses the reading or what to listen to. And then afterwards, after sitting and listening to something, have some discussion about what you've listened to and maybe also about your practice. It can also be helpful at times maybe to pick a theme for a week or for a couple of weeks to focus on. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, who was one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And this is the conversation between the two of them. And the Venerable Ananda speaking to the Buddha, saying, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends. Companionship with the good, association, with the good. And the Buddha responded, Don't say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. 
let every moment as much as possible be a conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life, perhaps the greatest, and it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm and tranquility and joy increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and compassionate life increases. And another Nanao Sakaki poem. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. And I would add, in the time that you have, take time to let the body move. Take time for seeing drawing. Take time for writing. And take time to sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot. <laughs> I'd like to close the talk this evening with two poems. One last Nanao poem, kind of as a tribute to him and as a tribute to our practice. And he called this poem a love letter. Within a circle of one meter, you sit, pray, and sing. Within a shelter ten meters large, you sleep well. Rain sounds a lullaby. Within a field a hundred meters large, raise rice and goats. Within a valley a thousand meters large, gather firewood, water, wild vegetables, and amanitas. Within a forest, Ten kilometers large, play with raccoons, hawks, poison snakes, and butterflies. Mountainous country Shinano, a hundred kilometers large, where someone lives leisurely, they say. Within a circle ten thousand kilometers large, go see the southern coral reef in summer, or the winter drifting ices in the Sea of Oksk. Within a circle 10,000 kilometers large, walking somewhere on the earth. Within a circle 100,000 kilometers large, swimming in the sea of shooting stars. Within a circle a million kilometers large, upon the spaced out yellow mustard blossoms. The moon in the east, the sun in the west. Within a circle 10 billion kilometers large, pop far out of the solar system mandala. Within a circle 10,000 light years large, the galaxy blooming in spring, full blooming in spring. Within a circle 1 billion light years large, Andromeda is melting away into snowing cherry flowers. Now within a circle 10 billion light years large, All thoughts of time, space, are burnt away. There again you sit, pray, and sing. You sit, pray, and sing. And closing the talk with a poem by the Native American woman poet Joy Harjo. And she calls this Eagle Poem. 
To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you. And know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And let's sit quietly for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.